HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member now. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The Hey everybody, welcome back to the Speakeasy. I'm your host, Southern Teague, uh, and we're broadcasting live from the future today. I love the future. It's yeah. really, it's nice here. Yeah, right? Jetpacks and rocket <laughs> shoes and all that stuff. Because um, we're down, Damon and I are down in New Orleans at Tales of the Cocktail right now. So and I'm sure you're having a great time. We're going to predict that right now. I'm going yeah. to say it's a winner. Yeah. Uh, so in the studio today, I'm here with Harry from, what? I'm sorry, I forgot the name of your show. Feast Your Ears. Feast Your Ears. Harry has a show right here on, on the Heritage Radio Network called Feast Your Ears. I do. Hopefully, if you listen to Feast Your Ears, you just ride on through to the speakeasy. That's right. Speakeasy right before after us. my show. Yeah, right before us. Um, but that's not why I have you on the air today. No. Even though that's plenty of reason. Sure. I got you on the air today because you're an interesting character in the food and beverage scene here in New York City. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, and I want to kind of, you know, generally speaking here on the show, we kind of back up a little bit and talk about what you've been up to for the first segment. And then we kind of take a break. And we'll talk about what you're into these days, which we'll talk about cool. a lot. Great. Right? So say who you are, where you're from, what you're doing. 
So, I'm Harry Rosenblum. Uh, I, when people ask me where I'm from, I say I grew up in Westchester, because being in New York City, Westchester's like this place. It's like a cloud, like a vague place to the north <laughs> that you can either get to through many traffic-filled roads or perhaps on Metro North on the train. Uh, hard to get there by bicycle or by foot. Uh, I grew up there, um, but uh, lived in Northern California as a teenager. I feel like that was fairly formative for me. And then uh, went to college in Massachusetts and moved to Williamsburg, kind of by accident, um, 18 years ago last week. Oh, wow. Um, I uh, had a friend in... So you've in, seen a pretty major change in that little part of Brooklyn. Yeah, def- <laughs> definitely. And the city as a whole, too. Of I mean, course. I, you know, and I have vague memories of the city as a kid. I mean, I, I, have, I have one memory of being very young, riding in the jump seat of a checker taxi. Um, but those were kind of gone yeah. when I was really little. And I remember the subways being covered in graffiti um, from a couple of trips into the city. But I didn't, like, ride them every day or anything. Right. Um, but, yeah, been a lot, of, a lot of changes in Williamsburg in that in that time. Um, but now, um, I've, I've done a lot of things in my life. I've been a plumber, an electrician, a scenic designer, a lighting designer for television and theater, and had a cabinet shop for a while and a lot of different things. Man of many parts. Yeah. Uh, and now, uh, my wife Taylor and I own the Brooklyn Kitchen. Um, Love which that is place. A cooking school uh, with two studios, one in Williamsburg and one in Sunset Park. Uh, that we just opened. Uh, yeah, Sunday. I haven't visited the Sunset Park uh, spot yet, but I've I've taught a few classes at the yeah. at the. And you actually Street. taught, I think, at the at the OG in our original little store space on. I did Lorimer Street. Yeah, that's a long time ago. Yeah, right. So we opened the Brooklyn Kitchen in 2006, um, and I think met Sather. I think I met you shortly thereafter. Yep. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's that's what we've been we've been uh, we've been doing um, running classes. We've we've sort of shifted our focus from being a store that also had cooking classes and also had a grocery and a butcher shop and a fish counter and those sort of things. We've closed the retail operation of our uh, of our company and we are focusing, that's recent, right? That's, that's recent, the past, past month or two. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we are focusing on teaching people how to cook. Uh, our new sort of slogan is that we will teach you how to cook like a grown-ass adult. Yeah, which is important. I think, uh, you know, we talk pretty regularly and it seems that, uh, especially in a metropolitan area like New York City, but I'm sure it's true of all major cities. The kitchen is such a fucking afterthought in your home, your yeah. apartment, that it doesn't encourage you to want to be in that room yeah. and cook. You know, I mentioned to you, I think, yesterday that my kitchen is way smaller than the studio <laughs> that we're in, which is tiny. <laughs> yeah. And I have I lived there almost two years, and I have 100% absolutely never cooked there. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, and then you go out into like the suburbs. I feel like, and you know, the kitchens are the kitchens are enormous and, and bigger then, than my apartment. Yeah, and then I feel like in like the eighties, you know, people started to eat like then you have the eat-in kitchens. So you have kitchens that have like a bar that have a bunch of stools, and then you have kitchens that don't really have any walls that kind of like bleed into the living room. So now I feel like you, you know, in the sort of more modern uh, housing outside of New York, I feel like you could be standing at the stove and you could have people sitting on a couch watching TV because like the living room and the kitchen and the dining room are kind of all blended together. Yeah, those open space areas. Yeah. So, and, and one of your other slogans are painted real big on the side of the, the wall there and also you have bumper stickers, yep. eat real food. Yeah. Yeah, what do you mean when you say that? So, for me... Um, I mean, this show's usually about drinking. We're going to talk about some food first, but we're going to get to drinking. I think you should... Hang on, should, listeners. We're going to get to drinking. <laughs> I mean, I would say you should drink real drinks, too. I mean, right? I'm drinking right now. Yeah, exactly. There you go. 
so, you know, the, the eat real food slogan um, was born just out of this idea that, you know, the, the food space is full of lots of discussion about where you should get your food and who, who should produce your food and what's the right food to have. And people have lots of opinions about that stuff. And it's not – I've always – taken a kind of libertarian view of that that it's like it's you know i i'm not going to proselytize to you to tell you what's right for you but i think we can all agree that we should be eating real food it's i, I find it very hard for someone to walk up and be like no man this this twinkie look at how many ingredients are on in this this is totally you should eat this yeah. this is normal right, <laughs> right. like you know <laughs> I, I think we can all agree that like yeah is that an egg on a piece of bread that's real Right? That's real food. And then what you well, take that to mean what yourself. What was it? Michael Pollan said, if you see an ingredients list that has anything listed that wouldn't be present in your grandmother's yeah. kitchen, yeah. don't buy it. Yeah. Or that you can't pronounce or that you don't know what it is. Yeah. If you can't make that yourself, then don't don't buy it. Yeah. So for me, that's what real food is about. And whether that means, um, you know, baking your own bread for you, if you're like into that or milling your own flour. I mean, that's, you know, sure. It's a bridge like, too far, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> or if what that means is like, oh, I'm going to eat an apple, like that's real food, right? So absolutely, I totally get that. And you're trying to spearhead a movement and teach people how to not only eat real food but to shop for it and then take it home and cook it themselves. Yeah, because I I, I think that we you know increasingly, I mean, you know, you see it. I mean, I, I had this moment the other day where I like remembered riding on the train when I first moved to New York 18 years ago. I carried a CD player a walk a cd walkman yeah and i carried a sleeve in my backpack of like six cds and a cd wallet so i could decide what i wanted to listen to and i carried a book or i carried the newspaper right, right? and like that because i had like i had a long commute back then i commuted like an hour each way on the subway right so that's what i carried and now everybody's sitting there and everybody's looking at their phone Right. And yeah. and I just like had this memory about that. And I feel like, you know, back then, sure, you have headphones on, you're not really interacting with people, but at least you're like looking around. Yeah. Right. And you could like see, make eye contact with somebody. And we're starting, you know, more things and not that technology is bad. Right. I don't, I don't want to be like the Luddite. Like technology is great. There's a lot of amazing things. About Everybody it. knows I'm kind of a Luddite. <laughs> my only computing device is my phone. I've said it a hundred times on this show. And you and you manage to lead a normal life in the in the, you know, in the modern age, I guess. I mean. <laughs> I do all right. You communicate I'm doing with people. All right. I'm doing. You're all drinking right. a beer right now. I mean, come on. Um, but I, but I think that uh, one of the things about the the if you go deeper into what we try to teach people about is commensality and being together and working on a project together and eating together and that as something that is really important that people don't necessarily do and and in america we really i mean you know people you know oh you grab a you grab a bacon egg and cheese on your walk to the subway and you like eat it while you're on the subway and then you sit at your desk typing away in your cubicle eating a salad from the place downstairs and then you grab a piece of pizza on your way to do you know do yeah. something else go see a movie or whatever and you know there is value and i'm not you know look you don't have to do it every day. You don't have to do it multiple times a day. But like once in a while, I think you should sit down with people across the table and eat. And if you have prepared that food, there's like another level of, of yeah. greatness there. I totally agree with that. I think it's an interesting. So let's talk a little bit about drinks. I think it's an interesting shift. You know, I was a chef for 12 years. I was in the back of the house. I've been in the front of the house now for 15 years. I, it, it would always bother me a little bit and I didn't really know maybe in the in the first few times that it happened why it bothered me but it would always bother me a little bit when a guest would sit there at the bar and I would be serving them food and drinks and they would grill me on every item on the menu 
what farm did this beef come from? Are these eggs, uh, you know, local? Where did this, where did you get these greens from? Grill, 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 grill. And by the way, in this scene that I'm painting here, it's it's winter time and there's, you know, snow slowly drifting down from the sky, right? <laughs> and then they grill, grill, grill on all the items. But on your them, hair looks awesome. And then they turn around and they say, I'll have a mojito. <laughs> and I think to myself, this mint probably traveled all the way from Chile. Right, right. <laughs> it's not local. It's probably not sustainable. Right. And these limes are not actually in season the, anywhere. Ever. In, yeah. <laughs> limes, I think, are something we created. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and it's, but people somehow don't make the same connection to their drink as yeah. they do to their food. Even though more and more and more, I see all across the board, we have, you know, chef tenders, bartenders who are doing a lot of stuff in the kitchen to make those drinks happen. Hmm. And I still feel like many of those guys and, and ladies... Um, are still breaking that seasonality rule. Right. You know, I've, I've said before, I, I eat, I, I drink like I eat. And there's four pieces to that puzzle. I drink first to the season, second to the occasion, third to the atmosphere, and fourth, you know, every fucking day. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right? So that means, like, I'm not ordering that mojito if there's snow coming down. Right. That's the seasonality part. Yeah. But as far as atmosphere goes, if I'm at Miss Favela's, the Brazilian bar over in Williamsburg, and they're playing crazy music, and we're dancing, and they got pictures of mojito flowing around, and there's snow on the ground, I'm ordering that. That's right. the atmosphere. Right. Occasion, I'm not a big champagne drinker. Surprise, surprise. Uh, but on New Year's Eve, boy, I knocked down a few bottles. Yeah. Right? That's just how it's supposed to be, and that's the same way with food, I think. And people totally understand that with food, yet it's completely abstract when it comes to drinks. Yeah. I mean, I, there are, be I, like, I feel like I've been hearing about It's wintertime. I should eat a bunch of roasted vegetables and a strawberry margarita. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what you're thinking. You know? I mean, you know, there, there's that gets back to the libertarian in me that's like, if you want a strawberry margarita, I, I guess, go for it. I, I don't understand that drinks are luxury as well, yeah. and maybe that's a part of that, right? right? The food is a thing that we have to have, so let's make sure it's the localist, you know, most sustainable. Yeah. But drinks are luxury, so maybe I want to say, fuck off, I want a lychee martini with lychees that came all the way from <laughs> who knows where. In a can for yeah. like three years. Who knows? Yeah, whatever. Yeah. So I get kind of both sides, but it's still kind of weirdly bothersome. Yeah. I mean, someone mentioned to me that, um, you know, in the craft beer, you know, craft beer is becoming so much more and more popular, but that the one beer is in the Killing market it. that is continuing to get, that, it, that isn't really being affected by that is Mexican beers. And one of the reasons that they made that they sort of, I mean, I, you know, this is all, this was anecdotal, but one of the things that they told me is that they felt like it was because the Mexican beers, like when you drink a Pacifico, it's because you want to be on the beach. Yeah. And in your brain, you're like, I'm drinking a Pacifico. I could be on the beach. I don't know why those types of beers got labeled as lawnmower beers. That sounds like work. I want them to be called beach beers. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want a lawnmower beer. I want a beach beer. I mean, today in New York is a beach beer day. Yeah, a little bit humid out there, but I I love this stuff. So you've brought for us some vinegar to drink. I did. And we're talking about beer. And I would like to mention that, you know, I'm from the Deep South. And it has long been a practice in the South and probably other places in the world. But my personal experience is that it's long been a practice to have a lawnmower type beer, Budweiser, etc. With some dashes of vinegar in it. And usually that vinegar is sport pepper vinegar. Because oh. that's typically on the table when we're eating our greens, you know, collard greens, et cetera. You dash sport pepper vinegar on them. But it's totally common to a few dashes into your beer and a pinch of salt. Oh, salt too. Huh. Yeah, just a pinch. I've seen people put ground pepper in, in, oh, yeah, in why not? beers. But I've never, I've, I mean, that, I love putting vinegar 
in beer. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't have to be. I mean, it's, so the beer, the, the vinegars that I brought, I'm also a vinegar maker. Um, yeah, that's what we're about to talk about. And uh, so I brought a couple of vinegars that I made. I brought uh, one that I call a mishmash malt vinegar um, because I don't remember what went into it. Uh, I had a, about a half a keg of some homebrew. Uh, someone else gave me some uh, some beer that they had in a keg that they had also brewed. Um, and then we had like what was left of, I think, a... Uh, uh, like we had a some of a keg of Brooklyn Brewery uh, beer as well, um, and so uh, I sort of put it all together. That one uh, I then aged in a uh, charred oak barrel that I was given by the folks over at the shanty. Oh, um, fun from from New York what, Stilling. From what what was in it? Uh, what was in it was one of their rye experiments. Yeah, cool. um, and so that one is really interesting because it has this. I mean, it, it tastes almost. I mean, it's a crazy umami. Like, it's got, like, a soy sauce kind of thing going on. I really dig that. Um, and I think part of that was from the wood, and I think part of it was from the fact that, that one of the homebrews was, like, almost, like, really, it was, like, syrupy, like, Belgian, like, dark kind of beer. So I think the syrupiness um, sort of, as it got acidified, translated into this umami thing. Red. Um, then I have one that was... Hang on one second. Yeah, go ahead. We're going to... It's mid-show. So we always take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. You know, that's how, that's how we stay on the air. Um, so we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back and talk about the remainder of these vinegars that are on the table. Probably going to pour, pour ourselves some while we're on the break and start drinking them. And then we're going to talk about what you're getting into now coming up. All right, so stay tuned to the Speakeasy. We'll be right back in just a minute. Heritage Foods USA is a farm-to-table online butcher and founding sponsor of Heritage Radio Network. Patrick Martins founded Heritage Foods USA in 2002 to save endangered species of livestock from extinction. He learned about the plight of endangered foods while working for Slow Food, a nonprofit started in 1986 in Italy when the first McDonald's opened on the Spanish steps of Rome. To counter the homogenizing effects of fast food, Slow Food was formed to bring attention to regional cuisines and ingredients. By 2000, Patrick was the president of Slow Foods USA and working on adding heritage breeds to their arc of taste. But he decided to go further than a metaphorical arc and actually do something to preserve rare breeds. That was the moment that Heritage Foods' slogan, Eat Them to Save Them, was born. By creating a market for delicious meats from Heritage Breeds, we can ensure they'll be around for generations to come. Plus, Heritage Breeds just tastes a whole lot better. Learn more at HeritageFoodsUSA.com and use the code HERITAGERADIO for two free pork chops with your first order, brother. And welcome back to the Speakeasy, broadcasting to you live from the future. The future. Yeah. Uh, in the studio today with uh, Harry Rosenblum. He's, uh, he's a man of many parts, and he's brought a bunch of vinegar with him that he made himself. And then uh, he's going to describe a few more of them. We're going to start drinking them, and then we're going to talk about your book. Sounds great. So, yeah. uh, before so you talked about the, what, what did you call that one? The, the mishmash malt mish vinegar. Mishmash malt vinegar. Yeah. Which sounds like I want that all over my fish and chips with mush, uh, with mushy peas. Yeah, that one, that one would be great on fish and chips. That one uh, would also be great, like, just... You could use it the way you use soy sauce. That one is so umami tasting. You should definitely taste it. Let me see it. Okay. Uh, probably shouldn't have sat so far across the table from each other. Uh, and then the uh, the second vinegar that I brought. Uh, Whoa, this smells amazing. I know. It's crazy. That's a re- I mean, it's, it's one of the uh, m- most interesting vinegars I've made. And I've made, you know, dozens and dozens of vinegars. Wow. I just took a little, about a teaspoonful. So savory. Yeah. And bright. Yeah. My mouth is watering like crazy. And it really smells like a chip shop. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. How and long did it take you to make this? So that uh, that one took about, 
took about six weeks to to ferment the beer into vinegar, um, and then it aged for about another six weeks uh, in so the charred dark. in the charred oak barrel. Yeah, I mean the beer started out pretty dark. I don't think that color came so much from the barrel. I think the uh, the rye or whatever they yeah. made in the barrel first took a lot of the a lot of the color out of the oak. Yeah. Um, but I you know I got into making malt vinegars because I discovered after making a bunch of vinegar that malt vinegar was very easy to make, especially with darker beers, because there's enough nutrient in the beer for the bacteria to really thrive. And you don't have to water it down like you do with wine. Uh, the vinegar bacteria, the acetobacter, doesn't like things that are above about 9% ABV. Right, because you'll kill it, right? Yeah, it, it, just, it gets really slow. It's hard for it to convert, and it, you know, it, it just doesn't like that environment. It likes alcohol. It just likes it light. Yeah, in moderation. Yeah. Uh, like me and yeah. you, you guys should all drink in moderation. Exactly. Um, but you know, the other thing was that there are starting to be on the market, at least in the United States, some very interesting vinegars in the realm of wine vinegars. Um, there's a, a Lindera Farms makes a huge variety of vinegars down in Virginia. He makes a ramp vinegar and a spice bush vinegar and does a lot of forage ingredients. The folks at Keepwell Vinegar in Pennsylvania are doing aronia berry vinegars. They're doing grape. Grape juice vinegars, um, I mean, lots of lots of great stuff. Seems pretty endless your opportunities. Yeah, to make it that. really is. I mean, anything you can turn into alcohol, but there's really not malt being done. I mean, the, the folks at Keepwell are doing a malt, but I just felt like in that classic sort of malt vinegar style. You know, we have good apple cider vinegar that's available pretty readily, and and there's there's decent wine vinegars uh, both from Northern California. Cats make some incredible ones, and then coming out of Europe, but malt vinegar, you know, the stuff we get here is like crappy. You know, like, and it's like caramel colored and it's not real malt vinegar. And it just opened my eyes when I started as a home brewer to turn some of my beers into vinegar. I was like, this is amazing because you get the maltiness of the beer, but you then get acid with it as well. So the second one that I brought was made by uh, the beer is was called Lupulos con Leche. Um, and it was a uh, it was a hopped. Uh, ale that had lactose in it for mouthfeel that was made at Rockaway Brewing by my friend Ray Gerard, who mm-hmm. used to work at the Brooklyn Kitchen and now is now brews at Rockaway. Um, and this one is, in, is I find to be also really crazy. You can smell and taste the hops in it, um, and in a in a way that like you wouldn't. I don't know. You, I, I, you wouldn't really expect, I think, from most malt vinegar, and certainly not from malt vinegar wow, that you this, can buy. <laughs> this just it smells like a, a beer. Yeah. Yeah, it smells like a beer, but then when you taste it, it's it's acidic. And so, you know, that opens up a whole lot of interesting uh, flavor opportunities, both for mixing into drinks or for cooking as well. I feel like, okay, we're just going to use the example that we have right in front of us on the table, which is a beer. I've got, you know, my tried and true red red and white dynamite Budweiser in front of me. Um, I feel like if I, t- if I put a few splashes of this into my beer, I would have a kind of a hoppy sour beer. Yeah. Right. This is going to transform my oh, yeah, yeah. good old Budweiser totally. into a Goza. Yeah, for sure. And I'm no beer nerd, so I'm probably mispronouncing that. So don't <laughs> don't don't yell at me, people. But that's um, great. I just took a second dose of it. Yeah. And if you pour that over, you know, over ice with some seltzer uh, or even Ooh. just some water, the flavors open up quite a bit. So you know, one one of the real revelatory malt vinegars I made early on is I I uh, I begged five gallons of fresh uh, Brooklyn Brewery summer ale from the folks over at the brewery and turned it into vinegar. And it was amazing because what I discovered is that, you know, that beer has a lot of citrus notes to it, but it has no acid in the beer itself. It's a really, you know, it's a a real easy drinking beer. When you turn the alcohol into acid, 
and then you pour it over ice with seltzer, it tastes like you're drinking a lemonade. Right. This is a great way to have shelf-stable acid on hand. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So then the other ones I brought were an apple cider vinegar that I made by... uh, That one was fermented straight through from apple cider. So I took raw apple cider and let it naturally, spontaneously ferment with the yeast that was present. uh, And that created the alcohol and then fermented that uh, into vinegar uh, with the addition of acetobacter. Awesome. I love apple cider vinegar. It's it's kind of my favorite fruit vinegar. I'm making an experiment over here. Um, So I just put some Budweiser over ice with the... Lupulo con leche. Yeah. So it's which is the one that smelled hoppy. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. <laughs> Try this. It tastes like a goza. I mean, you know, needs some balance, needs some tweaking. Yeah. But, but like, it's, it reads as a totally different thing with just a yeah. few dashes, really. Right. I mean, because you're not used to that acid. A little goes a long way. It does, indeed. So, uh, what got you into vinegar making? And, and we're going to talk about your book in a sec, but. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> you're, you're. I think just from based on what you talked about in the beginning of the show, you're, you're, you're more at home in the kitchen, but you like to brew. Yeah, I mean, I, I've always been a, a tinkerer. Yeah, uh, my wife talks, again talks from the, about from the list of things you just said. Yeah, yeah exactly. Many, I've been, many parts. I've always been a tinkerer. Um, I, I got into brewing, uh, home brewing in college um, because I very quickly figured out that the homebrew store that was next to the package store would sell me all the stuff to make beer, but I wasn't old enough to buy beer. Fucking genius. So I made a bunch of really <laughs> shitty beer when I was like 19. But I even 20. remember in the, in the heyday of homebrewing, there were even those T-shirts. that were, there were Every homebrew shop had the T-shirt that said, oh, it's still a homebrew. Yeah. Like, it's still beer. Yeah. Whatever. If I fucked it up, I'll exactly. still drink it. Still drink, well, it's still a homebrew. And at age 20, that was definitely true. So I did a bunch of brewing, and then when I moved to, when I moved to Williamsburg uh, 18 years ago, uh, I lived in an apartment that just had a door that opened onto the street and had a mail slot, and I couldn't get packages, and I was freelance, and so I, could, I had nowhere to get supplies, and there were no homebrew stores in New York City at the time. There was one way out on the LIE, almost to Queens, right. I mean, almost to Long Island in Queens that I couldn't get to. I didn't have a car. So I very quickly figured out, you know, if I wanted to keep making stuff and tinkering with alcohol manufacturing, that cider was the way to go, because I could get packets of champagne yeast delivered in an envelope that would fit through the mail slot so i would go to the green market i would buy a couple gallons of apple cider and i would ferment my own hard cider and then so basically this is just you know obstacles being the mother of invention you got it working your way around oh i mean totally so the next part of the story is that one night uh about i don't know 14 years ago maybe i was bottling a five gallon batch of cider that i had i had that and that i had in fact pressed the apples myself and done the whole thing because i was curious now that's something that i wouldn't do again but i was just curious i was like i want to know how this works sometimes you gotta know myself. you gotta you gotta know by yeah, doing it like, exactly. you know, i tell people all the time i love bitters i don't recommend making them yeah right but you know how they're made so yeah, exactly you know. so i was bottling this batch of cider and i had miscalculated or misplaced or whatever i didn't have enough empty bottles so i had about a gallon of hard cider left that I had started exposing to the air. And so that, that's, that's the big key here is air, right? So when you're making beer or cider, you want the fermentation to happen in an anaerobic environment. You do not want oxygen. You don't want to oxidize your final beverage product. Yeah, um, when, when you make homebrew, you've got your... Uh, you have an airlock on You're there. in a bucket with yep, an airlock. Exactly. Yeah. So the yeast are anaerobic. The yeast are eating the sugar and converting that into alcohol. Then in the presence of oxygen, if you have acetobacter, that bacteria with, with oxygen, which it needs to survive, like you and me, it will convert that ethyl alcohol into acetic acid. So I had about a gallon of home of homemade hard cider left, and I didn't know what to do with it. And I remembered that I had a little bottle of organic white wine vinegar in my pantry that had grown this weird little raft on top. 
that people call mother. Yeah, the so banker I, mother. So I dumped them together, and I left it in the corner of the boiler room for like two months. And when I went back, the apple cider vinegar was delicious. And the cider from that batch was like, meh. So so, and so it. Op- I was like, "Oh man, this is this is amazing." I, was I mean, like, that's probably the business plan of a lot of folks, right? They go, "Sure, oh, we got these apples. They're not that great in <laughs> yeah. in, uh, in hard cider, but they're delicious in vinegar." So yeah. we're going down that road. Sure. I mean, uh, my friend Bob Sewell up in uh, up in Maine is an organic apple farmer and turns most of his product into vinegar in part because he is unwilling to pasteurize his sweet cider, and so he only sells direct on his farm. And he won't pasteurize it in order to be able to wholesale it. And the FDA came down on him about it. And so he now converts almost all of it into vinegar, which it's then shelf stable. And you have a much, you know, you end up having a higher price point product because nobody's buying, I mean, not nobody, but most people are not buying a gallon of vinegar. They're buying little, you know, eight, 16 ounce bottles. Right. Huh. Pretty genius, but pretty shitty of the FDA. Yeah. So that's how I, I got into up everything. Cheese and milk. <laughs> yeah. Sake now. There's a sake oh, brewery Jesus. that uh, is being told they're not allowed to raise their koji in wood the way it's been done in Japan for like a thousand years. <sighs> Time to move to Japan. Totally. I'm, I'm with you. I'm there. Yeah. Uh, so th- I started making vinegar um, and started playing with it and experimenting it. And every time I had a little bit of wine left or, uh, you know, some beer or I would had some cider. I would make so, I mean, some do you cider. have like this, all these crocs around your apartment? Oh, or? yeah. <laughs> my, I've, I've got like. Again, going I, back to the metropolitan nature of where we live, <laughs> I don't have room in my apartment for anything that isn't absolutely necessary. <laughs> so I, uh, I luckily. I leave my shoes out in the hallway. Yeah. There's no room in here. <laughs> I luckily ended up uh, at the time I had uh, I had access to a boiler room, which had a lot of sort of room around the sides of the boiler and vinegar's not flammable. So I figured it was no big deal to like leave a bunch of crocs and a bunch of bottles in there. Also kind of nice and warm for them. I exactly. Guess. The bacteria does like it to be a little bit warm, sure. um, you know. So and then uh, my current apartment is has a smaller kitchen, um, but I do have a shelf that's kind of dedicated to these experiments. But luckily, I also have the Brooklyn kitchen. So I mean, I have right, an entire of, big laboratory. I got a big space there, and uh, I'm working on bringing to market a uh, a brand called that will be called Revival Vinegar. Um, oh, and right. the goal is for that to be a uh, the first product will be a 16 ounce uh, malt vinegar. That will be made from Victory Brewing uh, Ale, and uh, hoping to get that to market sometime in the f- that's fall, awesome. got- maybe early next year. By the time we actually get it together, that's great. You got some kind of deal with them where they give you spent beer or beer that they can't use, or well, um, actually, I'm just going to take beer. So uh, I'm going to be making it at a food manufacturing uh, facility that mm-hmm. uh, shares a, is in the same complex as their main brewery, mm-hmm. and we're just going to buy beer from them before it goes in the bottle or a keg. We're going to buy finished beer from them right out of the fermenter. Um, and then fermented into vinegar in this other space because they don't want vinegar anywhere near their brewery. Of course, yeah. The first time I brought a bottle of the uh, vinegar that I made from some Brooklyn Brewery beer, I walked over to the brewery, walked into the brew house, and said, hey, guys, I brought you this vinegar. And I held up a little eight-ounce bottle, and all the brewers looked at me like I was holding a grenade that I had just, like, yeah, released the clip on. You like, suddenly brought this yeah. terribly <laughs> aggressive thing that could yeah. ruin everything we've done. So I backed out slowly, right. and I said, I'm going to leave it out here, but here's this vinegar. You can don't keep it in the brew house, but you might want to try it. It's delicious. <laughs> it's amazing. So right here on the table, I've got an um, advanced copy of your book. Uh, vinegar Revival. And that's what you just said you're going to call the vinegar, right? Uh, yeah, so the book is called Vinegar Revival. The vinegar will be called Revival Vinegar Works. Revival Vinegar Works. Yeah. Pretty smart. Pretty smart. Uh, it says artisanal recipes for brightening dishes and drinks with homemade vinegars. Uh, and then I got to glance through it a lot yesterday. We were on a train together for a couple hours. Um, 
there's a lot more drinks recipes in here than I expected. Like, I really thought this was going to be, you know, savory, kitchen, all that kind of thing. But you really kick it off with some drinks that are pretty amazing looking. You know, and I, easy. They, I mean, they are. They are easy. And, and people ask me all the time, you know, what do I think about drinking vinegars, which have kind of become a thing recently. And people talk about it. And, you know, we talked about this yesterday. A lot of those are just soda syrups. They're, you know, soda's acidic already. In most cases, it's citric acid. So, I mean, a Coca-Cola is the same acidity as those vinegars you tasted. Right. It's just balanced out with a metric crap ton of sweetener. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I've said a million times, if Coca-Cola were flat, alcoholic, and unsweetened, it'd be the number one selling Amaro in the world. <laughs> how do we bridge that? Yeah, it's a, a bridge to jump over, but, but yeah. think about that. Yeah. It, it's universally popular. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so, um, so yeah, let's talk about your book some. Yeah, so uh, so the book, uh, you know, the book starts out with basically how to make vinegar at home, which is incredibly easy, and uh, it is easy because there's a lot of passive time. It you're is. Not, it's, it's a ton of passive time. Like you're not the bacteria really, do the heavy lifting. You're not, yeah, you're not like hanging around and stirring or shaking every day or moving it from light to dark or whatever. Um, but so, just as an average, I, I, I haven't looked at all the times on these recipes. How long does it take for the so listener, it, the reader, to, to make a batch of? Vinegar. It will it will vary. Um, it will vary a lot depending on environmental uh, environmental factors um, with your own space, um, how warm it is, what the humidity is, those kinds of things. But I would say on average, uh, it takes between four and six weeks um, for a batch to convert. But that could be as long as three months, depending on what you've started with as a base liquid. Sure. Um, if you're fermenting all the way from like a sweet cider that has to go through alcohol fermentation and then through acidic fermentation can take longer now one of the things that i sort of warn people as i kind of cheekily did earlier about making your own bitters is it takes a while and you kind of don't know what the outcome is and even if it's amazing i i defy you to repeat it <laughs> what's the fail rate of making vinegar because i don't think it's that high even no it, it's it, not again, sort of like the homebrew even if it's not the greatest it's still pretty fucking good if it's not the greatest it's not that good and and what i would say that's different about like the world of bitters is that there are you know dozens if not hundreds of delicious bitters that are on the market oh yeah and they're not in the grand scheme of things all that expensive right vinegar is a very different product there are very few you go to the you know if you go to into a supermarket in a metropolitan area you're going to find angostura on the shelf sure and you might even find some regans or some peshads depending where you are right right? if you go into a supermarket in this country and you go to vinegar you're going to see white distilled you're going to see red wine vinegar that's probably just colored red you're going to see white wine, maybe, or champagne. You're going to see super watery balsamic that's probably not very good. And you might see, and you'll probably see some apple cider that will range either from caramel colored stuff that doesn't really taste like apples to you might find some organic raw apple cider vinegar. But that's kind of it. And so one of the things that I think at the moment anyway is that that marketplace doesn't... This apple cider vinegar, by the way, smells amazing. Thank you. Doesn't have that much in the market such that... If you make it at home, most likely you are going to make something that is delicious and is probably better than what you can buy and much cheaper. Right. And I think it's like it's always important to note that, that it'll be much cheaper. But I don't think people give a shit about that. You're probably people, right. I think people give a shit about it. Is it better? And did I, yeah. make, and did I make it? Yeah. And did I do what you've done right here? You brought me four little adorable bottles that you've you know hand-labeled that, that are just charming as fuck. Right? So... 
you make way more than you need. Yeah, of course. Because it's the same time, whether you're making an eight-ounce eight yeah. bottle or two gallons, right? Yeah, and if you start with a single bottle of wine, you're going to end up watering that down probably by half, right? So right. then you're making, you know, accounting for evaporation, you're making like a liter or more right. of vinegar. You can give some away. You can have some to use. And then, you know, the, the other, and then you could also go the direction that happens a lot in Europe, um, certainly in, in France, where you have a sort of never-ending vinegar. You just have a crock on the counter, and you pour half a bottle of wine, a quarter bottle of wine, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. You can even add beer, sake, whatever you want that has alcohol in it into this crock. And then every couple of weeks, you draw some off into the bottle you're using to cook with. Right. And it's just a never-ending, always-changing acid. Well, all the folks listening know about the you know never-ending bitters, the decanter bitters. All the folks listening know about Solera-style you know, fortified wines, etc. Sure. Like, it makes sense. Yeah. It's a sort of a... Uh, you know, a, a built-in waste not want not situation. Yeah. Like, you know, it's like your compost pile. You're always adding to it, but yep. it's always going away at the same time. So. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the Solera. I do say in the book, and I, I often tell people, don't make sherry vinegar at home. You can make vinegar from sherry, but it will not be the same because right. unless you're going to invest in a Solera, yeah. which you're not going to, because you're going to invest literally a lifetime. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the same thing is true of balsamic. You know, there's right. no you you there's no reason to even try to make balsamic at home. Um, when you consider what goes into that with having to buy the batteria, with having to store it, with having the time. I mean, you know, you consider they start with 100 liters and 20 years later they end up with 10. Yeah. And then they blend that together. And then if the con- and then the consortium has to taste it and p- give it a pass and, and give it a pass and say it's good enough. Right. And in at least in uh, in Reggio Emilia, the ages that you see on the bottles, whether that's 18 or 25, it's not actually that the vinegar is not it's it's at least that old right and that's so not similar to cognac yeah except that that is, that is in fact not because they have to certify but because no vinegar maker in his right mind would submit something that was younger than that and try and get it passed right because it won't exactly so there's the there's the rub you you go home you diy and make your own all the all manner of vinegars yeah. and then you spend some money on balsamic and the sherry vinegar exactly there you go you saved all that money yeah <laughs> <laughs> Saved all that money making your own vinegars. How often do you drink the vinegars? How often do you cook with vinegars? Is it is it everyday every day. practice for you? Every day. I, I mean, I, I drink vinegar. Since that first batch 14 years ago? Pretty by much. Your, by your water heater? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I, I pour some water, uh, I mean, some vinegar over water or into, into water every morning. Yeah. Um, just as sort of my regular, you know, my regular uh, morning beverage next to my espresso. First uh, thing I do every single morning is drink an Underberg before I brush my teeth or anything. <laughs> anyway, you just have a clot. That's, what, that's, co- what, you, that's what you have in your oven. I don't drink you have coffee. Underberg in your oven? No, that's probably a good place to keep it because I buy it by the case. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, note and then, to yeah, yeah, there you hey go. Siri, take a note. Yeah. <laughs> and then I cook with it all the time. I mean, I you know the other night for for dinner, um, I came home. I didn't know what I was going to make. I just sort of looked at what I had. I had like a zucchini and an onion. Oh, that was loud. What the hell was that? I don't know. I don't even know where that was. Uh, all right. Zucchini and onion. Zucchini and onion. <laughs> uh, and I had some stew beef uh, sitting there that I, you know, just it was in the freezer and I defrosted it. And I was like, I don't really, I don't, you know, I'm not gonna make like a long stew. And so I just did like a quick, I sauteed the vegetables. I cooked the beef off, poured off the fat, and then just simmered everything with some vinegar. A little bit of vinegar and a little bit of beer. Delicious. Simmered it and it was done. Ate over rice. Super easy. Amazing. Uh, and and I also, you know, I, I, I think that people are, as they learn to cook at home, and I went through this as I learned to cook at home, you end up uh, using salt a lot. I mean, restaurants, 
there's a shitload of salt in all the food and you end up adding salt and adding salt and adding salt and really what I would encourage everyone who's listening and anyone who buys my book to try is don't add as much salt add a little bit of acid yeah no I kind of agree with that uh, you know um, lots of cuisines have that you know especially Latin cuisines you're, you're eating your tacos and they always come with a lime wedge on the side yep. um, the same is true of some Indian cuisines as well and uh, I don't think it's a terrible idea at all to have like even just a little atomizer of your yeah, favorite vinegar absolutely. nearby that you can just sort of sh- put a sheen on all on all your food. Oh yeah, I mean a, a spray bottle for vinegar is incredibly useful. Um, you know, really great for great for dressing salads and that kind of thing. But also great for you know, there's a, a one of my favorite recipes in the book is one of the simplest. The, I have a recipe in there for just roasted cabbage. You just take red cabbage and you just cut it up into you know bite sized pieces basically. Toss it with some olive oil, salt. You roast it until it starts to get crispy, and as soon as it comes out of the oven, you spray vinegar on it. Boom. Sounds delicious. And that next to a beer is a really good snack. <laughs> Bar snack. Um, okay, so let's do some plugging because we're here at the end of the show. First thing, I think, plug your show. Sweet. Feast Your Ears every Wednesday at 1 p.m. I interview people in and outside of the food spectrum about what they do, how it influences their personal life, and, and influences what they eat and what they cook. Amazing. It's a great show. You've only been on for a short time, right? Uh, it, uh, today was episode... I want to say 78. Oh, you mean last week? Oh, yeah. Last T- week. Today will be episode oh, 79. Today will be episode 79. We're in the future. I forgot. It's very confusing I in the future. I warned you. Time travel is not for everyone. <laughs> Uh, and then let's plug this thing. So Vinegar Revival, uh, my first book, comes out August 1st. Uh, we will be having a... Potter Publishing. Yep. They love it when you say that. Yeah. Clarkson Potter. Um we will be having a, uh, a kickoff uh, sort of book launch party down at our Brooklyn Kitchen Industry City space on uh, on August 1st. Uh, and if you can't make it down to Industry City, we will be having another event uh, that I will share the stage with another vinegar book author and also one of our co-hosts uh, here at Heritage Radio, Michael Harlan Turkel. Oh, right. Uh, and that will be a Heritage Radio event, and that will be actually be on August 9th, the following week, at the Brooklyn Kitchen in Williamsburg. Right on. And you can order Vinegar Revival at VinegarRevival.com uh, or on Amazon.com or from your local bookstore. If you order it from me at VinegarRevival.com, I will sign it and send you a bottle of vinegar when it comes out. Nice. Bonus round. Bottle of vinegar comes with the book. That's great. Uh, well, thanks so much for being uh, our guest today on the Speakeasy, uh, our guest in the future on the Speakeasy. Uh, while we're down in New Orleans, <laughs> yeah, now I, you, I, I now mean, I, me I, I know you guys are having a great time. Uh, we're having a great time. That's why. That's why I seem so. Drunk. I don't know how you can be in two places at once. That's, that's why I seem so drunk right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so next week on July twenty uh, sixth, um, we'll have a clip show. Damon and I are taking down some Zoom recorders to New Orleans, and we're going to interview some folks down there. Um, I've set up a, a few pretty cool ones, and we're just going to clip the show together uh, in the editing studio. I don't know how to do that yet, so you know it may be great, it may be a fiasco. Either way, tune in next week to hear that. Um, the following week, um, Miss, Misty Kalkafin, uh, who is like one of the premier um, mezcal uh, authorities in the United States, is going to be on the show immediately following the show. She is going to be on uh, on the bar at Coup, uh, making drinks with uh, Vita Mezcal and and doing it all for charity uh august 9th we got karen Fu of uh, uh the donna here in new york city so that's a pretty stalwart lineup of folks coming up to talk to us about drinking and having a great time here on the speakeasy 
Um, but that's it for the show today. Please tune into HeritageRadioNetwork.org uh, to listen to thousands more shows just like this one. If you have the moment, uh, tap on the beating heart on the website and donate so we can keep shows just like this one alive um, and shows like Harry's going as well. Uh, thanks again, Harry, for being in the studio with us today, and uh, we'll talk to you next time on The Speakeasy. Cheers, guys. Thanks so much. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The Church of God, not Satan's bar.